Um, some of you are new here. There's a lot of new faces here. And uh, Tim has been around Cornerstone for Forever. a long time. <laughs> a long, long time. And in fact, I remember when I first came to Cornerstone, uh, meeting Tim, uh, he actually was the high school pastor right before I became the high school pastor, so we kind of built a relationship together. He moved from being the high school pastor to give oversight to our global ministry, and so got to know him also because I became the executive pastor, so we maintained a friendship and relationship through that. And then uh, four and a half years ago, about four and a half, three and a half, what was it, when you and I had our talk at Panera? A while ago. January 1st, 2009. 2009. You're like my wife. You're keeping me in line. We've always had that type of relationship. Um, But it just broke on me the news that he'd gotten himself caught up in some sin. And we sat there. I'll never forget sitting there. My heart broke for a friend. But I love truth. And truth came out. And he began to just share about how he had gotten caught up in an inappropriate relationship. It never went sexual, but it still was inappropriate. It was with a woman that wasn't his wife. And so we began to kind of talk through it and work with both he and his wife. And we even brought him up in front of the church. Because one of the things the Bible talks about in 1 Timothy 5, and I was going to put the verse up there. Don't worry about putting it up there. But it just talks about your leaders amongst you, your elders, that when they get caught up in sin... You're to actually bring it before the congregation so that the congregation understands if a, a man of that is walking with God can get caught up in sin, so can the rest of us. There is nobody who can't buy into the lies of sin. And so we brought him up in front and we told the story and we began to walk with him. And, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a brutal three and a half years in the midst of it. Um, lost his marriage. Um, he's been away from his kids. But let me tell you something about what God did. For over three and a half years now, I've watched as God caught, took a guy that was caught in sin. And Tim could have ran. He could have. He could have taken off. He could have gone somewhere else where nobody knew him and nobody knew his junk. But the thing is, is that God, the Spirit of God, just kept him here and would not let him leave. And I'm so thankful Cornerstone came into his life and loved him through this process because I'm here to tell you today He's a man that's broken, but he's a broken man that walks with Jesus. And so, and so, for those of you that think that sometimes when you see pastors that fall that can't be restored, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Is that Tim is an example, and I just, I'm thankful. I remember, I don't even know if you remember when Chuck, we, we, he kind of had a falling out, and we had to restore him, is that for some reason, God has always had his favor on this church. And guys like Tim is that, yeah, he's gone through the ringer, and I've walked with him through it, and I've just cried with him, and talked with him, and been angry with him, but at the end of it, Jesus is still king. And that's where we're at. So let me just pray real quick. That's why he's leading today. We just we want you to know the elders love him, love where he's at in his life. So we're not just flippantly throwing a guy up here. He's a man that has walked with God in such a way that there's no doubt. I have, no, I have full confidence bringing him up here to lead us in the worship of Jesus. Amen. All right. Jesus, you're so powerful. God, my heart breaks at just the ramifications of sin. But you're powerful. You're able. 
You're huge. And you demonstrated it in Tim's life. And God, I believe you're demonstrating it more in Tim's life. I believe you desire to demonstrate it in all our lives, just how powerful you are and how you can take the lies that Satan tells us and what he intended for evil, God, you can use for good. God, I'm so thankful for Tim and the man of God that he is today. I'm so thankful he's not a, he doesn't in the least see himself as perfect, but he sees him as, himself as a man that's being made perfect by Jesus. And I pray that he never loses that. Thank you for his humility. Thank you also for just the way you've empowered him to serve the body. Thanks for this morning, just allowing him to lead us in the worship of you, knowing that he's led with a clean heart. And God, I just pray you'd take our time together now and honor Jesus Christ in your precious name. Amen. Love you. That's what I love about Jesus. He takes all of us. Let's be honest. All of us in this room, we're pretty messed up, right? And if you don't believe me, ask your spouse, and they'll tell you. I mean, it's just, but God is so good. Man, he's powerful. He can take any one of us, anything that's going on, and he can shift and mold and make us into the man or the woman of God that he wants us to be, even in spite of us. If he needs to throw us in a fish, Jonah learned, he'll throw you in a fish. That's how much he cares about us. And so that's what we've been doing in John. We've been talking about how Jesus loves to take those that don't see him accurately, reshape their thinking so that they believe in Jesus. And the thing about it is, is then he wants to give us life. That's what he's after. And we're going to be in John 11 today, and we're going to talk about one of the things that steals life, which is believing lies. And the thing about all of us in this room is, is every single one of us in this room, I don't care who we are, and if you don't think you're one of these people, you're wrong, We all believe in lies. We all do. That's why the book of John and even 1 John talks about the reason that we need to be close to Jesus is that as we're close to Jesus and his light shines into my life, the evil deeds that are a part of who I am get exposed. And as they get exposed now, it is the best thing in the world because those lies, what they do is they cloud my image of believing in Jesus like I ought to believe in Jesus. Believing lies isn't just an oops. Believing in lies, what they do is they hinder our intimacy and our love and eventually our joy that we have in Jesus. You know this, that the longer you live in a lie, the more debilitating and frustrating and just absolutely awful you feel because you've been living this thing that you have to constantly protect. And in weird ways, all of us have learned how to hide our little lies. We take our weaknesses and our, 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 our things that we're ashamed of and we seek to kind of put them in a place where no one else can see, missing the fact that those very things are what Jesus loves to take so that he can be honored above all things. And so in the passage that we're in today, Jesus has just come out of, of raising a guy from the dead. Something that's kind of cool. And if you remember last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about this. Here's Lazarus. He's in the grave. Jesus walks up to the grave, tells everybody to move the stone. And you know, in the back of their minds, they're going, what in the world? But a few guys, they risked being, being absolutely having to sit outside at the, the, the gates of the city for a while because they would be unclean, but they moved the stone. Martha walks up and goes, Jesus, what are you doing? He's going to stink. I don't want to see him like that, Jesus. You don't either. He looks at Mary in that just a glorious way and he says to her, I thought we were going to believe. Aren't we going to believe? 
And then when those just words that we talked about in a loud voice, he just proclaims to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And out of nowhere now, a guy who'd been dead for four days, a guy who was dead dead, comes and he's standing in front of it. And everybody's sitting there going, (laughs) I mean, think about it. Can you imagine if I'm doing a funeral and, you know, we've got, you know, Aunt Gertrude up here. And all of a sudden I go, Aunt Gertrude, come out. I mean, you guys would be like, no. <laughs> and everybody's sitting around going, what do we do with this? And in verse 45, go there in chapter 11. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, and there's a reason why he says Mary there, but I'm not going to get into that today, and had seen what he did, believed in him. All that pain and frustration and agony that everyone had gone through, Jesus finally gets it to the point where it fully matters. They believed. They finally saw Jesus for who he was, and they're just blown away, and people are saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, in some ways, we know these very same people who believed in Jesus at this particular point, one day are going to be standing out with everyone else saying, crucify him, crucify him. But for a time even, at least some saw him and truly chose to follow him, But there were others that just said, gosh, he's got to be who he says he is. He's got to be the Messiah. He's the Christ. The thing that always perplexes me, though, is verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They tattletailed. Don't you hate a tattletale? My kids know I detest tattletales. But here are these people, and they're watching it, and they're realizing this Jesus is who he says he is. He has claimed to be God over and over and over again. And now what are they going to say? A dude comes out of the grave after being there four days, and all they can go is, "Uh uh-oh. All these preconceived ideas that I've had about Jesus, they're obviously not the way that I thought they were. And so what happens is is Jesus takes and he forces people into two camps. Either they're, number one, they're going to believe truly who he is, the Messiah. They're going to reshape their lives and they're going to follow him. Or he doesn't leave any middle ground. He creates this other camp, this group of people that tries to explain him away. In other words, they see the truth. And in seeing the truth now, they have to figure out, how do I explain away the work of Jesus? Now, let me just stop real quick. In our lives, we have a tendency, in spite of knowing the truth, there's this little piece of us that we will see truth. We know that we're going to have to adjust our lives to the truth. And instead of adjusting our lives to that truth in a weird way, we all have this tendency then to manipulate it in such a way that I don't have to deal with the truth. See, this is where it's happening, this fork in the road. That's why it doesn't create a middle ground. That's why Jesus couldn't have been just a good guy. He wanted them to understand, I am truly who I say I am. I'm God. And in the middle of all of it, verse 47, you see down there, a dilemma starts to rise up. So the chief priest, it says, and the Pharisees, man, they gathered together. The people came to the Pharisees because they were the, the, the kind of the men of the people. And they go in and they find the chief priests who would have been the people that, had, that, were, that were big within the priestly group. They were, they were family members. And they say, we've got to go tell the council. So they gather the council together. The council would have been the Sanhedrin. It was this group of what some people say was about 70 men, and they were kind of like the Supreme Court and Congress all wrapped up into one. 
They made decisions on behalf of the people. The Romans let them do this. And it had gotten to such a degree that they realized we better go get the smart dudes of our time to figure out what to do because we don't know what to do. You even see that in verse, four, in verse uh, 47b. What are we going to do? In fact, look what it is. They say not only that, but this man performs many signs. We got to figure out what to do because he can't be the Messiah. He can't be who he says he is. So we need to figure out what to do. We need to bend this thing in such a way that we're able to explain it away above all things. That's what we need to do. Not only that, it says in there, but they start to tell us why. Because if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and do what? Take away our place and our nation. This Jesus dude's going to wreck our world. Let me tell you something. Jesus will wreck your world. And that's good. There is nothing better than getting your world wrecked because your little world is a big lie. And Jesus is truth. And he comes in, and that's the one thing about Jesus is, is that he wrecks everyone's world. We honestly think we can be king And we're tired trying to be king. It is debilitating to try to run the universe, but most of us in this room try. And Jesus comes into this and says, no, I'm who I say I am. Not sure what to do. They're all sitting around. At the time, the way that it's talking about it is there's this chaos. And in verse 49, here comes Caiaphas. In fact, the way that it talks about him is is he was the leader of the Sanhedrin during that year. And the idea is that fateful year, that year that Jesus Christ got crucified, that's the dude that was the leader. Caiaphas was somebody who had been in his spot as as, as the high priest for about 18 years. And and being the high priest was like a political football. You had to be able to to massage the Romans and and the Jewish people all at the same time. You had to make the Romans think that you like them. And you have to make the Jews think that you don't like them. And so for 18 years, this man lived in this weird lie. He knew how to lie. He was a guy that they talk about. He was ruthless, cunning, highly educated. And he's sitting there watching it all take place. And you can just see everybody fretting. What are we going to do with this Jesus? Because if Jesus comes in here, we're going to lose control. And here's what Caiaphas says to him. Look at verse 48 of 49. You, at the very end, are idiots. That's what he says. You know nothing at all. He's looking at him going, shut up. I got this under control. I'm the best liar here. Watch me. Let me explain to you what we're going to do here. See, in the back of his head, he was like the rest of them. Because he understood in verse 50, he says, don't you understand that it's better for one man to die for the people so that the whole nation should not perish? Now, what he's doing there is kind of interesting. He's actually appealing to their worst form is that all these people are sitting there and they love this little thing they have. They love being on the Sanhedrin. They love being the leaders. Things are going well with their family. Along comes Jesus, this zealot, this one that's coming along and causing all kinds of chaos. And they're looking at it going, we've got to do something about it. Now, let me be fair to him for just a second. 
At this particular time, many zealots had come along throughout the time, of, of, especially between the Old Testament and the New Testament, who had called God's people, let's rebel against the Romans, and they had seen their friends lined on the roads, crucified, and they're looking going, I don't want that. I don't want to live in that world that, that if Jesus comes in, he doesn't even have an army. Why in the world would we ever follow this Jesus? Not only that, but would they, they sometimes crucify the people that raised up against the Romans, but they would take their kids and they would sell them into slavery. So on one level, they're loving this little world they have, but then there's this other level that they just fear it. Now, if you don't think that's the case, think about your own kids. And if I told you this Jesus guy was going to wreck your world, and not only that, but it might cost you your own life, and it even might cost your kids to go through terrible hardship, some of you might reconsider following Jesus. Which, by the way, Jesus promised that that could happen. And so they're sitting there wondering, what do we do? This is going to affect everything. And you see it right now as people are dealing with what do we do about this next election? In the back of their heads, if Obama gets elected again, it's all going to go to pot. We need to elect a really good Republican to save the day. And let me tell you something. We need to vote. But we don't vote with fear. We don't vote trying to save our tails. We vote in such a way that Jesus gets more honored. I sit around and I just listen to people inside of the church today. Everybody's acting like these Pharisees and we've bought into these little lies that slowly what they're doing is, is this, oh, if we could just do this, if we could just do that in our nation, everything would be good. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not trying to preserve the United States of America. He's trying to build a kingdom that's a kingdom where his son is king. Now we have a privilege of living here, don't we? I'm stoked I get to live in the United States of America. But I just see everybody right now so worried. We're acting like the Pharisees. And we start to make decisions now that are not based upon the glory of Jesus Christ. And we start explaining all those things away and just think, oh, if we just elect the right people, everything will be fine. No, it won't. These guys were thinking more political. They were trying to save their tails. And they started to buy into more lies. And you can just see this. And what happens is you start to buy into one lie and then you have to buy into two lies and three lies and four lies. And after a while, you just get yourself so far from the truth and you go down this trail that is so nasty and so ugly that you look back to the truth and you think to yourself, I can never get back there again, so I have to keep propagating more lies. So in the midst of all of it, they're sitting there with this dilemma, what do we do? And his solution is this. Let's kill the king. The greatest crime in history. Here they are sitting there, and the only solution they can think is what we have to do is kill that dude that everything about him looks like the Messiah. This is what lies do. They slowly blind us. In fact, the way that he lays it out, Caiaphas does, he's laying it out in such a way that they kind of just have two solutions. There's no solution in between. He doesn't ever ask them, hey, let's reconsider this Jesus being Messiah thing. 
Instead, he just throws it out and propagates the lie over and over again. But here's the great thing about this. It was more than just a devious plan. Because the thing we're going to learn next is, is even in spite of Caiaphas' own decision, even despite of all of his political instincts, even despite all these different things, God was still in control. Here's this one thinking, oh, I'm going I'm I'm to save the kingdom. And all the while, God is sitting there, really? And he lays out there this idea, and you look at it, here's what he says to the people. Oh, I know what needs to happen. It is better for this one man that he should die than for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here's what John adds to that. Here's old John sitting there looking back on it. And look at this. He says, he did not say that of his own accord. (laughs) He's almost laughing, I think, when he writes this. But being the high priest that year, he actually prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for the the whole nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Old John's just sitting there laughing. He thought he was doing God a favor, and he was. He was telling this story about how we can't in any way deal with things in front of a holy God. And so Jesus, doing what Jesus does so well, he stepped into our place. He became our substitution. He was talking politically, but little did he know there's also something spiritual happening between God in which when Jesus Christ died, he was prophesying about this whole reality that one day that one literally would be a substitution not only for the people of Israel, but for everyone in the world. See, this is what I love about God. He goes all the way back to Genesis 50 when, jo- when Joseph is sitting there talking to his brothers and his brothers are sitting there groveling going, oh, we don't know what we did, selling you into slavery. And Joseph looks at him and goes, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, I don't think we realize how big God is. That doesn't mean we want to sin. It doesn't mean we should sin. It doesn't mean we should look at the injustice going on in the world and we shouldn't deal with it. But what it means is we cannot thwart the plan of God. We can't. He is going to finish what he started. And John is sitting there as old man wanting to, these people to understand that not only could they not get, stop him from getting to the cross, but his point is, is they can't stop him from getting out to every tribe and tongue in every nation, the gospel being spread all over the world. And what that also means is we can't stop the day when King Jesus finally comes back and he sets everything straight. John is just sitting there as old man going, I can't believe it. In verse 53, it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. In other words, the trial they're going to have later doesn't matter. Not only that, but verse 57, look at that. It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should not let them know so that they might arrest him. In other words, everything is kicking into motion. It's all being set up for this day in which Jesus Christ is going to die. But not only that, look at 12 verse 9. It says, when a large crowd of Jews had learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests not only made plans to put Jesus to death, but to put 
plasters to death. They had so bought into the lie that not only now do I need to get rid of Jesus, but I need to get rid of any evidence whatsoever of what Jesus has done. That's how far their lie had taken them. Chapter 11, though, verse 54, Jesus was smarter than they are. It says, He no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. But in verse 55, it talks about, No, but the Passover, the Jews, was at hand. And so many had gone up there to purify themselves for the Passover. And they looked around. And the idea is they saw everything taking place, verse 56. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another, some in loud voices, some probably in in quiet voices, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? In other words, it's just a tinderbox. Everything is waiting for something big to happen. And while these people are there purifying themselves, there's a group of Pharisees and Sadducees and priests plotting to kill the king. Now in all this, the biggest thing that I was thinking through in my own life, I never want to think that I'm not one of those Pharisees. I never want to think somehow that no, I'm not somebody that wants my life based on lies. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think many of us believe lies and we just think they'll simply go away. I think there's others in here that, you know, we may believe that the cost of dealing with lies are just too great. Or, you know, I'll deal with some lies and not other lies. The the ones that don't cost me too much, those are the ones that I'm going to deal with. But the thing that I want you to understand is, is that this passage is telling us believing lies has consequences. And all of us in this room know what I'm talking about. We've believed lies over and over within our life. And in believing these lies, the outcome has always been negative. But yet in our stupidity, aren't we? We think somehow this lie I'm not going to have any consequences for. I think there's some in this room, and I just wrote down 12 lies I think people believe as I counsel. One is I can't or I won't be happy unless things go my way. It's what I call the teenage syndrome. And it's hard looking at a 50-year-old dealing with this one. The reason I'm unhappy is it's their fault. If they weren't such a schmuck, I'd be happy. Probably about a year ago, a woman looked at me and she goes, shouldn't life be easy? How old are you? Life should be fair. (laughs) Okay, then you deserve hell. (laughs) The other lie that I think people believe in, I can have it all. I don't want to wait, so we run up our credit cards. We take out loans. Those of you that are in here that are high school or college students, I'll follow Jesus after I enjoy my life a little. Oh gosh, how many of us wish we could take that one back? The third one, I did everything right, so why didn't everything go perfect in my marriage, in my family, in my business? God owes me more than I'm experiencing in my life. I'm a faithful believer, so he should have answered my prayers, especially answered them the way that I wanted them answered. The 
The fact that I'm a child of the king, though it never dawns on them, that's somehow not good enough. The other one that I see oftentimes with this lie is he's not delivering, so I guess I need to take matters into my own hands. One that I think I see over and over again are most of my marital problems are my spouse's fault. (laughs) I remind my wife of that all the time. (laughs) In regards to me. A few years ago, I wrote this one down because I didn't want to forget it. A guy said to me, if my marriage takes such hard work, then my spouse and I must not be right for each other. I gave him the... (laughs) Have you ever thought the spouse you need is exactly the spouse you have? Even if your spouse is the worst person on the planet... Hitler, Pol Pot. (laughs) It's the exact spouse that you need to become the man or the woman of God that God intends you to be. If you ever sit and look at that spouse and go, I deserve better, you're being lied to. (laughs) My spouse owes me for what I've done for him or her. I shouldn't have to change who I am to make my marriage better. My spouse and I, he, he, he or she should be like my dad or my mom or like the other person's spouse. You know, I've just decided it's better to divorce than to stay in a bad marriage. You know, my children, they're suffering. It'll be better for them for us to divorce. I mean, after all, doesn't God want me to be happy? No. <laughs> he wants you to be joyful and he wants you to be holy. Huge difference. The fifth one I think people believe in. Because I'm a Christian, God will protect me from pain and suffering. (laughs) I shouldn't be this sick. I've been so careful. I've worked out. (laughs) That's your own fault. (laughs) Just kidding. We should work out. (laughs) I've oftentimes heard, man... I don't know about this. I think we should avoid pain at all costs because suffering has no value or purpose. You kidding me? Are you kidding me? Man, when I go through suffering at the end of it, my eyes are so focused on Jesus, and you know this. You don't want to go through it again, but you're thankful you went through it. The sixth one. All of my problems are caused by my sins. In some cases, that's yes, but welcome to living in a fallen world. Man, not all your problems are your fault. Seventh one I was thinking about is the way people try to be perfect. Somehow my worth is determined by my performance. A good Christian doesn't feel angry or anxious or depressed. Really? Read the Psalms. (sighs) David's in there going, God, I think you ought to kill them. (laughs) Seriously. You ever sat down and read, why is that in there? Can you imagine if we read a song like that? God killed the Philistines. I mean, I'm up here leading it along. You'd be like, (laughs) I need to write a song along those lines. (laughs) God can't use me unless I'm spiritually strong. No, God's power is made perfect in weakness. 
I'll follow Jesus after I get my life together. (laughs) I'll see you on your deathbed. The eighth one. I just can't seem to break this cycle of sin in my life. Oh, yeah, you're right. The Holy Spirit is powerless for you. He could raise Jesus from the dead, create a whole entire universe, but you're right. That problem you're going through, way too big. It's too hard. God's just going to forgive me anyways. Then you've missed the point. God isn't just seeking to forgive you. He's seeking to change you. You know, some sin in my life is not too bad. It keeps me relevant with my peers or friends. Number nine, I need everyone's love and approval. Can you imagine if Jesus said that when he was here? I just want you Pharisees to love me. (laughs) Come on, hug it out. Come here, fellas. Come on. Other families don't have our problems. Yes, they do. Just nobody admits it. One of my favorites I just know I can fix them. No, you can't. You can't. Jesus can. Probably the last one, and I got this from somebody on our staff, I don't need to understand biblical submission. God can't possibly mean for me to submit to my husband, or especially unbelieving ones. I don't need to submit to the authority of my church leadership when I disagree with them. All the while missing that that leadership was given as a beautiful umbrella. And you know this, there could be so many more lies that we believe in. These are just the ones that I hear all the time. But the reason that our lives are so shattered is because we believe those things. And in my head, I just sit around and look at my own life going, why do I do that? You can even see it with Paul when he's talking about it in Romans 7 of the guy he used to be. He goes, oh my gosh, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says this amazing statement, which is the answer to every problem we have. Praise be to God. He's the one that will deliver us. And he'll deliver us again. In fact, you don't have to find solutions to your problems. The whole point of John is you need to find Jesus. And when you find Jesus, those solutions to those problems are found. Everybody's out there trying to look for solutions like Easter Bunny is hiding eggs all over the place. And I'm telling you, you don't have to. Now, let me just give you some questions that I oftentimes ask myself, and you can do whatever you want with these. I'm going to put them up on the screen. But they're questions that I try to use that, I'll be honest with you, I'm the pot calling the kettle black. I wish I followed these all the time. I don't. But here's the six questions I ask myself, and I'll just throw them up there. Here's the first one. And oftentimes I'll do this in prayer. God, what truths about myself that I am unaware of, or I'm aware of or unaware of, am I seeking most to hide or avoid? I do that because I know that there are little things inside of me that I don't want you all to know about myself. I know that I don't want you to know about me the fact that yesterday I lost my temper with my son. I didn't hit him. But oh boy, did I yell at him. 
I don't want you guys to see that about me. I don't want you to see that Todd actually has anger. And at times, he doesn't walk with Jesus. And so I was sitting down praying this morning. What do I not want people to know about me? I don't want you to know that yesterday, if you would have come into my house while I was yelling at my son for something so stupid, that you would have saw me and said, oh boy, homeboy's going to preach tomorrow? I bet I can go somewhere else tomorrow. So that's the first one I ask myself. Second one, who or what am I seeking to silence or keep at a distance so that I don't have to deal with what I know is true? It could be whatever it might be. It might be avoiding a person. It might be avoiding the truth in our lives. It's whatever it is that we do to try to seek to keep that stuff away from us. Third one, am I seeking to smother the truth? Is the Holy Spirit through my conscience screaming to me about lies, but I'm drowning out that voice through work, activity, or some kind of other escape? In other words, I've seen this over and over in people's lives. You know you need to just go be with God. You need to deal with your sin. You need to go and confess your sin to people. But instead what happens is we get caught up in work and play and internet and all these other things. And in the middle of all of it, we don't deal with the very thing that's keeping us from having life and life like we've never imagined. Number four, the scariest one on the planet. Have I asked someone to help me by pointing out lies in my life lately? I don't know when the last time you've asked somebody, but it generally starts like this. Hey, you know what? I think I'm believing lies in my life, and I think you might know a few of them. Would you point them out? And they go, well, um," in the back of their head, they're like, I got 20, but hmm. (laughs) I... And you look at him and you have to look at him and go, no, tell me. I want to love Jesus passionately. And in fact, the scariest person to ask for those of you that are married, you sometimes call honey. Number five, do I actually have friends in my life that will point out lies in my life? The book of Proverbs talks about these faithful wounds of a friend. Do you have people that you've surrounded yourself with that will tell you the truth about your junk? And not jerks, but I'm talking graciously. Will sit down and out of love say, I don't want you to not have a passionate, loving relationship with Jesus, so I want to point this out to you. And the last one is this. Do I love my friends enough to graciously point out lies in their lives? Isn't that scary? We see things in other people's lives, and in some ways, there are some, some of you like it too much. <laughs> so not, I'm not talking to you. You need to pull the plank out of your eye first, and then you go deal with the speck. But there's a lot of us we know in this room, we need to talk to our friends, don't we? We need to walk up to them and say, you know what, I need to talk to you about something, not because I'm a jerk, and not because I'm the thought police, and not for any other reason than... I want you to have a passionate relationship with Jesus. That's why I'm going to talk with you. See, I don't think we love each other like we ought to. And in the middle of all of it, we don't mean to, but eventually we get caught up in some of the dumbest things. And so today, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're someone that's believed the lie that Jesus isn't who he says he is, and I'm calling you to say, look, Jesus was who he says he was. If you'd like to follow Jesus today, we'd like to talk to you. Maybe some of you just need prayer. We'd love to pray for you up in the, up in the prayer room. 
Maybe some of you just know you buy into this lie that I need to hold off getting baptized for whatever reason. But I'm just praying today the lies will quit. I want so badly for there to be life in this church, but we will never have life in this church like God intended it as long as we keep believing in lies. And I just am dying to be involved in a church that finally looks at each other and goes, lies are over. Let's live in truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for everyone that's in here. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would just land on our lives and that we wouldn't leave here today without dealing seriously with our lies. God, I pray we wouldn't go weird on it. I pray that we wouldn't become fanatic so much as we would just find you, God, and allow you to expose things in our lives that aren't true. And then, Father, I pray we wouldn't shut off our conscience, but instead I pray that we would deal with them. I pray we'd deal with sin in our lives. God, I know in this room, just because I know myself, we have a lot of junk we need to take care of. And God, I want to be involved in a church that has life, but I know sin and lies are what keep us from truly enjoying you like we ought to. So God, I pray we wouldn't do it out of duty. I pray we would just do it out of a longing to know you and love you, and I pray we would experience that reality that you're a good God that loves to deal with our sin that you're forgiving. You're not the angry dad. You're the dad that's the prodigal dad that loves to throw his arms around us and deal with that stuff so that we might have life in your son. In your precious name we pray, amen. As we were talking about the services we can kind of process them through and towards the end of the discussion, I made some kind of like, well, voice, and Todd looks at me and says, yeah. And he says, I said to him, this passage of scripture and what you're communicating and what you're teaching and what you're sharing in these questions is me.
not been joyful? Now I take that back. The last four years have been very painful, but I have found joy. And so as we stand this morning, and in a moment I want to ask you to stand, and, and Todd has asked you to respond, I would beg you, don't walk in fear any longer. Walk in the freedom that Christ came to set you free with. There's a passage in 1 John, very familiar passage. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. That was me. I gave everyone the appearance that I was walking in light, yet I was in the darkness. But he goes on to say, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's freedom in that. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Jesus is faithful. He's faithful, people. Church, he's faithful. And he wants you to live in humility and he wants you to live in freedom. So this morning, make a choice to walk where you need to be walking and that's in the light. So let's stand. Father, as we finish, as we conclude this morning, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would make those in this room that need to be uncomfortable very uncomfortable. That you would allow us to run into your light where there's hope, where there's joy, where there's freedom.